All right. Good morning, everybody. Sorry about the countdown. Our computer obviously froze for some particular reason. Uh, everyone situated, you're good. You got your coffee. It might also help you if you have a pen or a pencil, something you could write with. You'll even see in the bulletin there is a little spot for you to take some notes. Any questions you might have, concerns, those sorts of things, I would recommend that. This week, uh, in preparation for this morning, the elders and I were having communication via email about this topic and about this message this morning, and, and they were cracking each other up in regards to just different things you could say about sex, etc. And so one of our elders, who, uh, who I will allow to remain anonymous, Jim Ruth, uh, <laughs> came up with a top ten reasons not to miss the beginning of the sex series. So top ten reasons not to miss this Sunday. So glad that you're here Ten, number 10, watch Meemaw turn 50 shades of red, <laughs> which if you don't know, Meemaw is my 89-year-old grandmother who was here at the 9 o'clock service and gave me a thumbs up when it was all done. <laughs> number 9, first impressions will be handing out blankets. Number 8, would someone please dim the lights? Number 7, yes, you can use that move on Valentine's night. Number 6, when I say stretch, I want to see everyone's hands. Number 5, Someone count nine months and go warn Kids Canyon. Number four, no, that is not what's playing on the little theater. Number three, no, it's not foreplay, the act, and afterglow. It's first, second, and third service. Number two, don't forget to pick up your kids. And the number one reason not to miss this Sunday, if the worship center is a rockin', don't come a knockin'. (laughs) We have great elders. I love our elders. Now let me begin at the outset by saying, one way we keep something from being an idol, which sex can become, is to hold it lightly enough that it does not allow it to be taken so seriously that it encourages and promotes idolatry, and humor is one way that can be accomplished. So humor is an essential part of our life on earth, and I wish to employ it some during the next four weeks as we walk through this series. So take a deep breath and allow yourself to relax and enjoy this conversation, even as in it we will bring up some very serious things, but we don't want to take ourselves too seriously or this topic so seriously that it holds a power it was never intended to have. So with that, if you would mind, let's pray together as we enter into this series. God, we come, we're asking you for wisdom, and we give you thanks for your creation, for your design, and for sex itself. And we lift up to you our broken pieces, or any guilt or shame we may be harboring, or any wounds that have been inflicted, either by ourselves or by others, and we ask for your healing. We also ask for clarity and wisdom as we discuss a very sensitive topic, and I pray that grace would be the preeminent tone of this room And that you would thwart our enemy who would seek to bring about offense, disunity, crippling shame, painful memories, or the severing of relationships between us as a community of faith. Allow your spirit to transcend my own weaknesses and my own sins and my own misunderstandings even around this topic. We lift all this up to you and ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now communication is a very difficult task. And experts will tell us that there are always lots of different dynamics at play in the process of communication. In the next four weeks, I will have approximately two hours of time to talk to you about the topic of sex, and I will not be speaking to a blank slate. We all arrive today with our own perspectives, our own experiences, our own sensitivities, our own places of pain, and those perspectives and experiences and sensitivities and places of pain will be the filter by which you will listen to anything that I have to say. 
That's why it makes complete sense that if anyone has walked through the horrific trauma of sexual abuse, you will often tend to hear what I'm about to say through that filter. Or if somebody is walking through the struggle or has walked through the struggle of dealing with pornography in their marriage via their spouse and all the conflict that came because of that, they will hear what I say often through that filter. Or if someone feels rejected sexually by their spouse and because of that they've suffered insecurities and despair that accompanies uh, that, that well, you'll hear what I say through that light. Someone who has actually broken off a relationship with a family member because of a sexual choice that they made in which you do not agree and you do not support with all of the conflict and fighting and turmoil it caused, often that will be the filter by which you will hear what I have to say. And someone whose entire life identity has been shaped by the shame and guilt assigned to them by the church because of their sexual mistakes in such a way that they're probably not even here today because of the pain of this topic, but rather at home listening on the podcast, hoping to find sanctuary and safety and solitude, will hear what I'm about to say through that filter. And mom and dad, I recognize if you are sitting in this room with your teenager right now, you will hear everything I say through their ears and thus completely different than if it were just the two of us in my office having a conversation or over a cup of coffee. And everyone here has hopes for what I'm going to say. And it's quite the pressure for me. (laughs) Some of you are hoping that I will say exactly what your convictions have been about sex your entire life, thus affirming your lifelong thoughts and behavior. Others of you wish I will say something to the sex-crazed culture that might get a good word in for chastity. And those of you who aren't married and really don't have any desire or plans to get married are desperately hoping that I might have a word about sex that is actually good news to you as well and not just a perpetual and consistent hammering no. None of us come with a blank slate. We all come with our own thoughts and experiences and hopes and desires. In fact, I would say it would be a most excellent exercise, even consider homework if you would like, to ask yourself and reflect, how is it that you think about sex and sexuality? Where did that come from? How is it that you came to all, I mean, all the opinions that we have about what is okay, what is not okay in this circumstance or this situation? How did we come to that? Whose voices have you given the most weight and authority? Or what or who has been the most influential to you? Especially for those of you who grew up in very conservative churches or homes like I did, your temptation will be to say, well, it's the Bible. The Bible is the thing that has most shaped my thoughts in regards to sex and sexuality, to which I would respond, probably not. The truth is, our thoughts on sex stem from a lifelong, complex dynamic of communication, verbal and nonverbal, from a variety of places. And you might just discover that those black and white categories that you have argued for might not, in the end, actually be in the Bible, but a simple regurgitation of what your parents told you, or maybe the church you grew up in told you, or maybe your youth pastor. The truth is, we all have lots of opinions about what is right and wrong, or maybe okay in this particular context, but not in that, or things that should never be done, and acts that are wrong for all people at all times. And if you were to truly analyze, well, where do you actually get that, those assumptions and attitudes and values in regards to that, you might find there's a whole list. A host of people or things could make the list. Maybe it's a particular friend or friendship group, or maybe it's culture at large. Maybe it's movies or TV, pornography even. Maybe it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend, a sibling, a cousin, etc. And sometimes they communicated in ways that weren't even all that explicit. It may be simply an attitude expressed by your mother in regards to her distaste of sex. 
Or maybe it was a youth pastor's message shaming anyone for even having a sexual thought. Sometimes our thoughts arise in a void. Our parents and authority figures never really said anything about it. And so I just tried to figure it out as I went along, swayed by whatever I could gather that seemed to work or be true. None of us are a blank slate, but a complex layer of voices that have shaped who we are today. And now I submit to you my voice, recognizing it is simply one voice among many who have already spoken into your life in regards to this topic. I say all this to say and to ask you for grace. When I say something that might be a trigger of pain or offense or sensitivity in this area, and my guess is that by the end of the four weeks I probably will, I'm asking you to extend to me the benefit of the doubt, even grace rather than offense. I'm not asking to be placed outside of questioning, only that you might appreciate I am attempting to speak on a topic that has presently in the room people from all sorts of different ages and backgrounds and experiences, and I have to aim somewhere. And if it were just you and me in the office talking and given your sensitivities and your experiences, I may word it completely different. I am presently speaking to both 13-year-olds with very little sexual experience and at the same time 47-year-olds that could write a lengthy novel based on their sexual experiences. And because of that, I believe some level of grace ought to be extended towards me. Amen? Amen? Thank you for that. As we get started, let me also say that this topic could rightfully have a ton of qualifications for just about every point that I make. You know what I mean by that, by qualifications? Like I make a point and then I follow it up with, now, what I didn't mean by that is this, and don't hear me say this, and well, I'm not saying this, and if I carried through with all the qualifications that were probably possible, I would only make two points in two hours' time and spend the rest of my time just making qualifications. I will make some. But I do acknowledge up front that there might be others that are possible that I simply will not provide because the time does not allow it. So extensions of grace would be great. And you will note on the back of the bulletin a way that I can be reached. If you need clarification or if you have questions or you need better explanation from me, don't hesitate to send me a message. I would be more than happy to follow up and continue these conversations in those forms. And finally, let me say, God is crazy in love with you and he knows all about your sexual history. I don't care what mistakes, what regrets, or what experiences you have had, God is still crazy in love with you. That when Paul says that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, what he did not mean was nothing except for that time you really messed up sexually. He did not mean nothing except for that time that you and your girlfriend, right? Listen, God is crazy in love with you, and nothing, not even this topic, will separate you from his love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Now, most people are anxious to get right to the, okay, what can you do and not do when it comes to sex? Like, and I get that. And there'll be some of that by the time we're done with the four weeks. But this morning's message is not really intended to be a, you can do this, but you can't do that on the issues of sex. This is kind of intended to be more of a foundational message that sets up the conversations at large in regards to the do's and the do nots of sex. So with that, allow me to begin. Let us begin with biology. Your body has been designed to respond to certain stimuli in a sexual manner. That is just simply the truth. And while the stimuli might be different for each person, and yet there'll still be great commonalities we'd find among us, via the five senses that belong to your body, like sight, and sound, and touch, and taste, and smell, there will be certain stimuli that affects you sexually. 
and your body will respond to it. Biologically speaking, chemically speaking, hormonally speaking, your body was created to respond to certain sexual stimuli. The survival of our species depends on it. Can you imagine if the first generations of humans were capable of sex and reproduction, but in the end were sort of, eh, what's the point? It's too much of a hassle. And we're so grossly apathetic and unexcited about the idea of sex, we would have died out in one generation. Our species would become extinct. We would be non-existent simply on the basis that we were capable of sex and reproduction, but no one really wanted to. Fortunately, by design, we are created with certain chemical, hormonal, and physiological responses that are intended to make us actually want to be sexual. It begins in the amygdala of your brain. The science of attraction, of which there is plenty of evidence today, has been able to detect what happens chemically and hormonally and physiologically. You are designed with intent to find attraction, and in it, chemicals and hormones begin to course through the body. Brain activity begins to take place in the orbital frontal cortex. And at this point, chemically, hormonally, and physiologically, your body is kicked into gear to have desire, sexual thoughts, and inclinations. And if we were to continue or fast forward into sex itself, we would discover that during sex, other parts of the brain slow down. And for some of you, they really slow down. The prefrontal cortex, the anterior cingulate, and the poles of the temporal lobe all begin to slow down. And through the act of sex, the brain is flooded with dopamine, which is a chemical that makes you feel good. In fact, it's not just about sex. Dopamine is released when you eat chocolate or when you take cocaine, which you shouldn't do. (laughs) Not the chocolate part, the cocaine part. Dopamine floods the septum, the hypothalamus, the amygdala, and the olfactory tubercles. Such as a side note, some antidepressants block the dopamine receptors in the brain. That's why sometimes an antidepressant can affect your sex drive. But then in addition, prolactin and oxytocin are released in the brain. And oxytocin is associated with bonding and trust. That's why often you'll feel closer to your partner after sex. After sex the lateral orbital frontal cortex part of the brain becomes more active, which is a brain activity associated with satisfaction. And similar brain activity has been found through eating satisfying food. For example, I think after eating a good ribeye steak, my lateral orbital frontal cortex goes nuts. And we haven't even begun to touch on what takes place within your different body parts and the physiological changes that take place during this entire process, but I'll spare you the details. Without going into further detail, all I want you to see is that you were designed and you were created and you were knit together in such a way to find sex exciting and pleasurable and desirable. And this is true regardless of your relational status. So when you tell me that a man or a woman likes to view sexually explicit images, my response is, of course they do. If you were to tell me that he or she was knit together and wired to find that pleasurable and enjoyable, I would say, for the survival of our species, that's exactly how it was intended to be. If you were to tell me that 100 million copies of a book about different shades of gray seem to be somewhat enjoyable to 100 million different women, I'm going to respond, of course it is. That is exactly how the biochemistry of our bodies were designed and created. If you tell me that non-married people still think about desire and want to have sex, I'm going to respond, of course they do. 
if you tell me that post-pubescent teenagers are kind of interested in and curious about and want to explore sex, I'm going to respond, you bet. That is exactly how their bodies, with its complexity of systems, hormones, and chemicals, were designed to work. Now, let me get theological with you for just a moment. We believe, do we not, that God is the one who is responsible for creation, right? Was it not God who knit us together in this very way? Who placed within us these hormonal, chemical, and physiological factors? I mean, we don't think that God was creating Adam and Eve and turned his back for just a moment and Satan showed up, rewired something, and I'm going to throw in some dopamine. <laughs> like, that's not... We don't, like, we don't believe that, right? But based on what I most commonly hear from the church, and especially evangelical Christianity, it is exactly that. That our sexual thoughts and urges and inclinations and responses have nothing to do with God, but are in fact the work of the devil. But we know theologically that's not true. More on that in just a moment. What would that say about our God for him to create us like that, to wire us like that, only to condemn us for it in the end? What would that say about our God to place those things within us inherent to our design and then in the end to label us as sinful and evil for our bodies and brains naturally responding exactly as they were designed to do so? And this is why the heavy shame-based teachings of sex from the church have not only not worked, but it has actually backfired in its results. And it is our response and reaction to sex and sexuality that has actually created the taboo to begin with. Sex can be an idol. What is ironic is that it is an idol both in culture and in the church. As it says on the back of that postcard we were handing out uh, in the, to announce this series, there's an excellent quote by Lewis Smedes where he says, It's easy to make an idol. All you need to do is slice off one piece of created reality and then expect miracles from it. And I think it is safe to say that based on what I see in our culture at large, there are great expectations of the miraculous from sex, that it is the end all of all things, that it has the power to bring fulfillment and happiness and all sorts of promises fulfilled, that if you could just find that new sensation or that right novel experience that you'll fall into a state of bliss and happiness. And so the idol of sex is viewed as good and promising all sorts of things, even holding the power to heal our very lives so we keep it close and we kiss it and rub it and manipulate it to fulfill its reward. But on the other hand, it can also be an idol on the flip side of the coin if it is viewed as something that threatens us, that has the power to harm us then we do not touch it. We do not discuss it. We do not exalt it, and we warn and shame others of coming too close, and we place around it a taboo. It is the opposite end of the coin, but an idol still. And it is our underlying assumptions about sexuality in itself that has backfired for the church. And how even if we didn't mean to, we made sex and a sex-obsessed God, which, by the way, is a false God, an idol. And the only way to remove it as an idol is to remove it from the realm of miracle worker, to deny it the claims the world would seek to make about it, but at the same time to speak against the common tone of the church by affirming that sex is not meant to threaten us. Our bodies are not created to sabotage our life in Christ, and the perpetual shame and taboo that is placed upon it is actually serving against us. For example... 
I have no evidence that any of my three children have ever seen a sexually explicit image or pornographic picture. But I know the statistics of when children are first exposed to pornography and given the multiple mediums of social media today that the chances that my children have not yet seen a pornographic image, all three of them, is most unlikely. But if I were to find out that they were looking at porn, let me tell you what I would do. I would hold it lightly to deny it the power it claims. And I would say to my children, of course you're curious. Of course you're interested. Of course there are pleasurable sensations that are coursing over your brain and body when you see those things. And I wouldn't shame them for that at all. They are responding exactly as they are designed. And the last thing I want is for them to feel guilt and shame for a response that is both God-given and innate to their very being. But then I want to have a conversation about what pornography is. And I want to share with them why our society at large, I'm not talking about just Christians, I mean even non-Christians, recognize some things are not age-appropriate because what they are seeing requires interpretation and they don't yet have both the maturity or life experience in which to interpret what they are seeing in any healthy manner or category. I want to talk about the lie that is behind pornography to discuss that what they are seeing can, in fact, undermine a healthy view of sex and set up expectations that are nowhere true to life at all. And I want to talk about the dangers and pitfalls of the medium and get them to see why this matters and has real-life consequence. And I want to affirm that it can be very challenging in our day and age to make a commitment to not go to those places, but to encourage them as to why they should make such a commitment and then I'm going to take away all their electronic devices and ground them until they're 35. Just kidding. But I will affirm their innate makeup, biology, chemistry, and physiological response, and do my best to avoid shaming them. And I say that because I have now heard every story and reaction in regards to how Christian parents have responded to their children in these moments. And I'm talking very overreactionary and sometimes violent responses angry tones, severe punishment, and overly harsh reactions as if their child has just committed the greatest sin possible. And when we transcend pornography and just include other sexual sins, I have watched parents label their children with such shame and such disdain that the very core of their identity has been labeled as tainted and impure. They're contaminated and can never return to their pure and innocent state. And when we respond like that, You've made sexuality an idol, a taboo, that will actually set your child up for only one of two possibilities. Number one, you'll teach them that, yes, sex is powerful, but is very shameful. And they will live in such repressive thoughts and shame that it will sabotage their entire life, including even into their marriage as a simple I do, will not have the power to remove all of those shame-based messages. Or number two, you will draw the child's heart so heavily towards the taboo that it will have a stronghold in their life that is unhealthy, harmful, and clearly what God never intended. If there is a sexual addiction to be had, it will be found via that route. If there's a compulsion that becomes a behavioral tripping point, this is how it is discovered. Didn't Paul himself tell us this is exactly the power of the law? Whenever you have this law-based, rule-based shaming, this is how we discover sin. He'll say in Romans chapter 7, verse 8, But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. But once I was alive, apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. What Paul is saying is, the moment you said to me, you cannot do that, 
So the moment he went, all of a sudden I want to do that. It's like, that's what that means. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment, put me to death. And I would say the same thing to those of you who are struggling with a spouse in regards to pornography. If you want to ensure that he or she remains in a place of struggle, and by the way, uh, I mean that, like he or she, we typically kind of act like porn is a guy thing, but the statistics today don't bear that out. Like this is a everybody thing, uh, struggling with pornography. And if you want to ensure that they remain in a place of struggle, shame them. Make them feel like a freak. Look at them as if they are a degenerate or someone who is filthy and disgusting. I'm not denying the pain and insecurity of your feelings and position, nor am I unsympathetic to the effect within a relationship. I'm just telling you that shaming someone is actually, it has a neurological consequence in the brain that actually keeps someone tied to the very behavior you wish they would walk away from. That neurological patterns are set deep that tie their identity and behavior in such a way that they become trapped in a vicious cycle of despair, self-loathing, and failure. And I wish I had more time to talk about those neurological patterns, but why they actually backfire. Did you know statistically, Christians have a much greater struggle with porn than non-Christians? For non-Christians, porn is no big deal. Take it or leave it. Who cares? And ironically, it is that posture that lets them walk away. But the moment that something is given the weight and ability to exact miraculous negative consequence, it has become a great taboo and an idol. And that is why I say, enter into the conversation, but hold it lightly enough that it denies to sex power that God never intended to have. And the statistics are not good, and they are not in our favor. When it comes to issues of sex, whether we are talking percentages of people who look at porn or the percentages of people who have sex outside of marriage, the church is statistically no different than non-Christians. The rate of premarital sex is the same for Christians and non-Christians. The percentage of people who struggle with pornography is actually greater for Christians than non-Christians. In fact, do you know what state in the United States, out of all 50, which state has the greatest consumption of porn out of all 50? You know what it is? Anyone know? Somebody got it right every service thus far. Do you want to know? Utah. It's Utah. Which, my first question, how did you know it was Utah? No, I'm just kidding. Like, right? And what dominates Utah? The Mormon church. Our true thoughts and values get revealed all the time in these situations. We discover what we really believe and think about sex. And it exposes our true ranking of the really bad sins and the ones that really aren't that big of a deal. And our kids see this. And I want you to think about this for just a moment. Think about the amount of violence we watch as a culture. In movies, in television shows, in video games, it really is amazing. I'm talking explicit scenes of people being shot, stabbed, blown up, gunned down. Very explicit scenes of bullets through people's heads, blood splattering, body parts being ripped off of bodies. We are so used to it, so desensitized to it, so accommodated to it, we don't even notice it or care when it's on, including in front of our children. But if a pair of naked boobies hits the screen, we freak out. We run to cover our kids' eyes. We hit the off button on the TV as quickly as we can, and it reveals our true priorities. Mass slaughter and violence isn't that big of a deal. But anything that is sexual, no! This is where Europeans look at America and think we've lost our mind. I'm not kidding. Like They are so much more sensitive than we are about issues of violence, and they cannot believe how much of it we consume. And they are equally shocked by our reaction to anything that is sexual. That doesn't seem nearly as big of a deal to them. 
Now, this is not a defense of looking at naked boobies. This is an illustration of how we make something taboo and idle and give it way more power than it deserves and actually undermine what we wanted to begin with. And while we're making a list, I would also put the overemphasis on purity and virginity within the evangelical church. Now, listen to me carefully. This is important. Right? This is, like, do not hear me say I'm not for purity or for virginity. What I'm talking about is the overemphasis. What I mean by that is I am witnessing those things are so elevated and so overemphasized and so dominating that it actually creates an idol out of virginity itself. It has been labeled by those on the outside as purity culture, and it has received its fair share of criticism, and I think rightfully so. And it typically revolves around teenage girls and their father, sometimes both parents but and their father. And what happens is churches encourage this, that their teenage daughters, and maybe sons, but mainly daughters, take a pledge to wait until marriage, to not have sex. They have a, make a promise to keep themselves pure until their father hands them off to their husband on their wedding day, and often these promises are accompanied with a promise ring. Have you ever heard of somebody Maybe you've even got one. I'm not opposed to promise rings, nor am I opposed to this in principle. I just hear me out on this. Now, some churches today are even having what are called purity balls, which I find most unfortunate. It's a whole ceremony where the girls get all dressed up and the fathers get all dressed up and they show up to the church and there's an entire ceremony and ritual that takes place promising virginity and purity until marriage. Now, I'm not opposed to the principle and commitment to purity and waiting for sex until marriage. You hear me say that, right? Everyone say yes. Thank you. But my question is, why purity rings? Why not honesty rings? Why don't we make our girls make a promise to always be truthful in people of their word, and then we can make a pledge together and I can give her an honesty ring? Or why not simplicity rings, where our sons and daughters promise not to be people of greed and consumption and actually care about those who are suffering and in real distress about the world? And then we can get together, dressed up, and we can have a ceremony and make pledges and promises, and I could give them a simplicity ring in which they pledge to enter the world with the heart of Jesus and care about refugees in Syria, trafficking in Thailand, and child kidnapping in Sudan. And what happens is it ranks, oh, yeah, we don't care about that, but virginity? Right? Yeah, she lies all the time and she has no integrity, but she was a virgin when I married her. Like, right? Is that what we're... <laughs> what our children see then is what is most important to us. Their sexual behavior and choices are the most important thing. And it elevates it to an idol, a taboo. And statistically, it doesn't even work. At best, at best, the statistics tell us that a girl who makes such a pledge might delay premarital sex by 18 months. But in the end, all the statistics bear out that she'll have be no different in regards to premarital sex as somebody who never made the pledge. And when she... And what then does it say about her, or what does she think about herself when she fails? When she gets caught up in a moment with her boyfriend? The amount of guilt and shame and inner turmoil and pain is enormous. As she enters into a dysfunctional relationship with God, who she now believes is eternally disappointed and angry with her, and she can't turn to her parents for help or counsel because she just promised to them that she wouldn't do such a thing. And I know I'm kind of an old guy now. And in it, I've had enough pastoral experience in conservative evangelical churches that I'm saying to you with authority, this is exactly what is happening to our youth. 
and it is scarring them in a way that we do not want. We're missing the opportunity by our knee-jerk reactions. And listen, as a parent, I totally get it. I have them all the time. But we're actually missing the opportunity to have a most excellent conversation about how God has knit us together and what that means for our lives in regards to a healthy and authentic manifestation of sexuality. And the reason is because it feels like we only know two responses. So we either embrace it as the greatest thing that's ever happened, if you, or number two, we shame it to death. And all you have to do is look to your Facebook news feeds with 50 shades of gray to prove it. It's driving me crazy. And I see those two extremes all the time, right? On one extreme, oh, my girlfriend's going to see the greatest books. Like, like the salvation is going to come through the books or movie of Fifty Shades of Grey. Or to the other extreme, if I read one more self-righteous, judgmental, high horse, I've never read the book and seen the movie, but I'm an expert on its contents and why it's wrong for any Christian to ever read it. And if you do, you're obviously a sick, disgusting person who wants to be sexually abused. Dear Jesus, make it stop. Now let me offer you an important qualifier. We are not at the whim or the mercy of our biology. And this is true for a lot of things. For example, you are biologically wired to respond to lots of situations in your life with a fight-or-flight reflex. And in it, you have been put together by God to have the accompanying chemical, hormonal, and physiological realities that will incline us in certain situations to either fight or to run. And this, too, is important for the survival of our species and saber-toothed tigers. But what we know as mature disciples of Jesus is not every situation that might biologically trigger our fight-or-flight inclinations is, in fact, the right response. That thank God we're not at the mercy or the whim of these flight-or-fight reactions. Thank God we are capable of recognizing them, but choosing via our will a more mature, healthy, and appropriate response. In the same way, you are not at the whim and mercy of your biological responses in the realm of sex. We are not dogs in heat. And this is important. A dog in heat has no controlling center to adjudicate the situation and choose a different response. Just, you know this when you go to your friend's house and they've got a dog and they meet you at the door, right? That's... We, on the other hand, do have a controlling center. And it means we are not at the mercy or whim of biology, chemistry, and hormones. Praise God. This is not a message to say, go with the flow of your hormones. It's a message that's just trying to encourage us to quit shaming the reality that we have them, to not feel guilty for acknowledging they are there, to not feel like somehow I need to go say 20 Hail Marys or flog myself with 40 lashes that a sexual impulse or thought were to ever enter my mind, and I'm even talking about a sexual impulse or thought that isn't about my wife. It is a reality of our makeup, and to suggest otherwise is a lie and ridiculous in regards to real life. And so that I could be fair and turn the tables here, I do not expect my wife to not ever have another sexual thought about another man. I mean, I realize when she has this, why would she want to? (laughs) But when she does, what I trust is that she isn't at the mercy or whim of that thought. And she will be able to steward that thought well. Which simply means for us, I don't need to hear about it. Nor is she going to share that thought with the subject of her thought. And she isn't going to gather with her girlfriends and giggle and trivialize the thought. Nor will she hold it with such, in such a manner that it becomes consuming. 
But to shame her or treat her as if she's a failure to Jesus for having a sexual thought is contrary to the very makeup in which God designed her. A thought in this regard cannot be equated with sin. And unfortunately, from the perspective of the church, it often is. We have tended to label it lust. And I would argue, and I will later, that is not the definition of lust. So let me go back where I began. Biologically and by God's intent, we were created sexual beings. When the Bible tells us in Genesis 1, verse 27, that God created them in his own image, in God's image he created them male and female, that those categories then have meaning. This is sexuality. This is a description of God's creative intent to populate the earth with those who are both male and female and will relate to each other on those terms. We are not androgynous beings, although we do see some quirks of nature in this regard. We do not appear to be designed to be asexual, although we do see some who identify as such. And when you even think about beyond humanity, like just beyond humans, all of creation, all living organisms reproduce and almost always in a male or female exchange. Birds do it, bees do it. I think there's a song about this, isn't there? Plants, animals, insects all have a life cycle that includes reproducing themselves. Reproduction is a fact and reality of our entire existence in created order. So we begin with this truth, sex is, and it always has been. Sex is part of the human condition. Now, what we say about sex is our interpretation of that reality. And our interpretations and how we see sex and how we think about it will determine our values. And what our values are will then determine our behavior. And this is the question for us. How do we as Christians interpret the reality that sex is? And the world from the beginning of time has been full of different philosophies and thought concerning sex. In fact, every major religion has tried to interpret and regulate sex. Every serious philosophy and rule of life that has ever existed has attempted to give definition and instruction on how one ought to think about and behave in regards to sex. And thus, there are different thoughts about sex, different values. You know this, right? If you were to grow up in a Buddhist home, you would have completely different thoughts about sex than if you grew up in a Christian home. Now, the commonalities is the Buddha wasn't that a fan of sex either. Like He really kind of spoke against it. And so here's some of his teachings. If you grew up in a Buddhist home, the Buddha's first discourse, he identifies cravings as the cause of suffering. Cravings are the cause of suffering, and he identifies three objects of craving. The craving for existence, the craving for non-existence, and then the craving for sense pleasure, or he called it kama. Kama is identified as one of five hindrances to the attainment of jahana according to the Buddha's teachings. In fact, he'd go on and say that sexual pleasure in itself is sort of like a dart or an arrow. And he had some other things to say. Now, when it kind of got boiled down to the layperson, they were at least advised to avoid sexual misconduct, which meant following generally accepted norms of of sexual morality and behavior. But from Buddha's full-time disciples, the monks and the nuns, strict celibacy has always and still is required. Or if you grew up as a Stoic, by way of philosophy, where the absence of emotions and feelings is exalted as the greatest good, that will affect your thoughts and behaviors about sex. Or to the other extreme, if you grew up in a home that subscribed to hedonism by way of philosophy, which says that pleasure is the ultimate good, that will affect your thoughts and behavior towards sex. 
And I could go on in regards to Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, Neoplatonism. Because of a lack of time, I can't get into all the different world religions and philosophies of thought in regards to sex. But at least for our concern, these things don't concern us because we are not Buddhists. We're not Hindus. We're not Muslims or Stoics or Hedonists. We are followers of Jesus of Nazareth. And thus, the primary question for us in this four-week series is, How does our confession that Jesus is Lord then determine our values and behaviors of sexuality? And this is where we will pick up next week. We want to ask the question, what does Jesus himself have to say about sex and its role and place among those who follow him? And then even widening the question, we want to ask, what does the Bible as a whole, like from beginning to end, have to say about sex and sexuality? And then how do we take this ancient text that was written for a completely different time, setting, and culture that's inspired by God and apply it to where we live in 2015. So this is where we will pick up next week, getting into what did Jesus say about this? What does the Bible have to say about this? Okay, let's go ahead and pray together. God, we give you thanks for the beginning of this journey, but in it we pray that you give us grace and mercy and also truth, that your spirit would guide us in our thinking, and especially as it applies to each one of our lives as we recognize and confess that you've created us to be sexual beings. We want to receive that as a gift and walk in that path. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment.